Welcome to another exciting rock show, and today's episode is a special one. Um, Mike is going to give us 10 albums that you need to hear before you die. This is episode one, and we're going to uh, have five albums. And um, why, what, what five albums are we talking about right now, um, Mike? Okay, well, the, w- the way we're doing this for July is we're doing it over two parts. Uh, 10 albums I picked out that I feel are very important uh, if you're a rock and roll fan to hear uh, some of these albums you may have heard of, uh, you may have even heard them, uh, but uh, I would assume probably most of these you're not that familiar with. So I don't I don't underestimate the audience. They probably know about them. Um, basically, we're going to do five today and then five in the next episode. They're not in any particular order. N- none are better than the other. Not, not, not going on a chart from 10 to, to one. Uh, it's just 10 albums I think everybody should give a listen to at least once. The first one we're talking about today is uh, the Rolling Stones' uh, Satanic Majesty's Request album. Okay, that's the cover right there. Uh, this album, I feel, uh, is very important in the, in, the, in the whole era of the 60s. Um, and even going forward, it's just a, a very unique album from a band that really never got into psychedelia too much this is a psychedelic album or their attempt at it this is a band that was always blues based r&b based you know rock and roll based chuck berry that kind of stuff especially in this era in the 60s and they made this strange turn in in january of 67 to try to record something um some people say it's it, it's in response to the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper. But I totally think that's what it is. Well, I, think, well, I, I, mean, don't think, I don't think it was a response, but I think they just wanted to copy that thing because band tends to like copy certain gender. They probably want to do their own version of Dr. Pepper to make it better. I mean, Sergeant Sergeant Pepper, Pepper. Not Dr. Pepper. I mean, Sergeant Pepper. They wanted to make a better version of Sergeant uh, Sergeant, um, Sergeant Pepper. Right. Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. So I. Well, the, the 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 reason I say that I don't think that was their original reason for this album is because they started recording this album in January of '67. Uh, it was right right after Between the Buttons came out, okay, which was an album yeah. that 
also is 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 interesting and kind of different than other things they've done. But they started recording it in January of 67, and the Beatles Sgt. Pepper didn't come out until June. So they were, and then they released this album finally in December. It took them all year to record this album, which was not the way they usually worked. No, uh, they're pretty quick. They were pretty quick. They were very prolific, putting out a couple albums a year, EPs, things like that. Um, I'll get we we did a show about the making of this already, but I'm going to give yeah. a little background on it just so everybody gets where I'm coming from. Um, this is the first album that was produced entirely by the band, and that was because their manager slash producer Andrew Luke Oldham had quit during the making of this record. There was a lot of problems at this time in the Stones. There was drug busts. There was a lot of uh, sort of infighting in the band. Uh, everybody kind of had their own little entourage going on. A lot of drug taking. A lot of you know hallucinogenics and other things were starting at this time. Um, the, the working title for the record was actually called Cosmic Christmas. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Which is kind of funny. but. They ended up taking the title uh, based on what was written on British passports back in the day. I'm not sure if it's still the same, but the, b- back on a British passport in those days, it said Her Britannic Majesty requests and requires. And it was just something that you saw on the passport. So they they came up with, uh, you know, their satanic majesty's request. Uh the band. Ain't it funny that they both that the Beatles and these guys did like almost like identical almost album? How how like were they? Did they have spies on each other's side that they made like the same kind of album? How did they know that the Beatles were making that album? And how did the Rolling Stone know that? How did the Beatles they know the Rolling well, Stone would make an album well, it's like a that? Good question. It's, huh? it, it's a good question. I, I I think that obviously the bands were friends. Okay, despite yeah. the despite the the media liking to portray them as rivals, they really weren't. Okay, uh, the Stones and the Beatles got along very well. Uh, I know John Lennon, you know, hung out with the Stones and things like that. They would they would, yeah. you know, Brian Jones was friends with all of them. Mick Jagger. Um, I, I I think that it just was a a, a period like this kind of like timepiece for that year. Is is we're gonna do something that's psychedelic, okay? Maybe the acid was Jimmy good. Hendrix, what's that? Maybe acid was very good then. <laughs> well, maybe they were all doing the same acid. I, I, it's very possible, okay? Uh, but even in even in so, it, it's it is a psychedelic record, but it's different than Sgt. Pepper in so many ways. Uh, I actually prefer it to Sgt. Pepper. Uh, that I'm sure I'll get you know, heat for saying that. Uh, I, I just find it more interesting because it's such a unique record for the Stones. Um, it featured a, a, a 3D style album cover. You, you put it up yeah. there for a second. It was called a lenticular picture. And if you notice, keep that up for a second, Rob. If you notice, you have the, the picture in the middle and then you have the blue uh, border the Stones wanted it to be no blue border. They wanted it to be just that picture, the whole album cover in 3D. Turned out to be too expensive. They had to make it a little bit smaller to make it fit their budget. Yeah. Uh, in those days, they weren't the multi-billionaires they are now. 
Okay, so uh, it's an interesting album cover. You got Jagger sitting in the middle. It's kind of almost uh, a cultish in a way. Okay, there's like a moon symbol on his hat. Uh, if you looked at this record when you bought it with the lenticular 3D cover, when you turned it a little bit, it looked like the pictures were kind of like like their faces were kind of turning with you. So it's wow. kind of a but but Jagger's face never changes. It's always looking straight ahead. So uh, the band began recording the album, like I said, in January of 67, right after Between the Buttons. But due to a lot of court appearances and some short jail terms during that time and other problems, um, they never really recorded it entirely as a band. It was the, the band was never in the studio at the same time, which is is, you know, it creates like a disjointed kind of feel to the record. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for this album, but it just wasn't the way that they usually recorded. And they were bringing large entourages with them, uh, which was something that, that Oldham had a problem with. Uh, he saw them going down a road. He didn't want anything to do with them anymore. Uh, and, you know, they would eventually go to Alan Klein and there would be problems there as well with their management. Now, Bill Wyman, the bass player, um, was particularly annoyed when he made this record. He wrote the song In Another Land, which was the single that was released off it, off the album. Uh, and he actually sings it. Um, it's kind of a parody on what was going on at the time. There was just, you know, he felt like he was in another land. Okay, uh, he he didn't. Bill was not into psychedelics. He yeah. didn't like acid, things like that. And uh, it just, you know, he was kind of the outsider at that point, and everybody else was getting involved with with these psychedelics. Um, hey, what's Mike, it? I want to bring up one point. So you know mm -hmm. the song uh, "She's a Rainbow," right? Mm -hmm. I always I always think she's a rainbow with um, Lucy and the Skies of Diamonds for some reason. Yeah, it, it, it you got to wonder, um, did they go into the studio with Sergeant Pepper and see, or did they talk and see, hey, I'm doing a song called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and Mick would write, well, I'm doing She's a Rainbow, you know? <laughs> it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. I, I kind of think it's more of a, a strange coincidence then there's actually something behind it but who knows i mean they, they really could have been talking to each other i've never heard that they were but who knows uh, i know but it was such a strange time you know it's not like not with the internet everybody that's what i'm saying it was, it's so close but because you know like they, it's not like now like i can put something online and you see it and then you'll be like okay i'm going to do this and but then they had to actually talk or so it's very funny that these albums came out at that weird time. So I, I'm just yeah. saying to me, it might not be a coincidence. They weren't in the same studio. Okay. Uh, this was recorded yeah. at Olympic in London. And of course the, the, the Beatles were in Abbey road. So yeah. it, 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 how they come up with similar styles, but they're not really similar. I, no, I, they're, I, they're different. There is differences. Like there's yeah. a lot of exotic instruments, on on uh on satanic majesties um also like like uh future led zeppelin bassist uh john paul jones does all the string arrangements on it okay uh now when the album was released in december of 67 it got to number three in the uk 
and it actually got to number two in America. Um, wow. the, uh, the, the, the song, uh, the, the single off it in another land really went nowhere. Okay. And the album was kind of quickly dismissed. It, it did well, you know, going gold, I believe right away in America, uh, cause they were just so popular. People would just snatch up anything they put out. Um, yeah. but you know, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger to this day say the album was mostly crap. And I, I, I tend to, to differ. I mean, they don't say that about like stuff that came out in the eighties, like, you know, undercover of the night, that was crap. Okay. You know, that, that was just them, you know, phoning it in, in my opinion. And it's okay. Uh, it is still one of my favorite bands, but, uh, the track list real quick is, uh, side one, you had sing this all together. Yeah. Then you had Citadel. Then in another land, then two thousand man, sing this all together in parentheses. See what happens. Side two was she's a rainbow. The but land. If you burned. wait, but you know with that song also that that last song or that sing it all and see what happened. Yeah. If you waited to um seven uh, fifty four, you got the uh, cosmic Christmas. Cosmic <laughs> Christmas. Yeah, it was like I think Bill Wyman saying we wish you a merry Christmas like that kind of thing. I think uh, it's funny. Yeah, it is. It is. She's a rainbow on side two. Then yeah. you have the lantern. You have Gomper, two thousand light years from home, and on with the show. Um, there's really no other Stones record that sounds like this. Okay, yeah. and 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 right after this, they would go right back to their blues based stuff, and they would have like this incredible stretch of Beggar's Banquet to Let It Bleed. Uh, Brian Jones would be gone. Uh, they'd get Mick Taylor. They would go with Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street and go into the 70s and continue. And uh, But they 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 dismissed this record. The only songs that they will today still do from it is She's a Rainbow. They occasionally yeah. bring that out live. Uh, that song has taken a life of its own. It's been in commercials and yeah. you know, stuff like that. Uh, people kind of forget it comes from this record. Uh, the other song that for a while had made a comeback, and I was lucky to see them do it live at their very, the very first tour they ever did it. And that's the song 2000 Light Years From Home, which really is a, a true psychedelic song, I believe, okay, yeah. from, from the record. Um, they never were able to, to, to do songs from this album live it was the same problem that the beatles well even though they weren't touring anymore but like stuff like on sergeant pepper could never ever be produced live oh, no. the way it sounded. now when you see paul mccartney he, he can do it okay you could you know he does eleanor rigby he does everything with this mass production in the background uh they couldn't do that back in the day so these songs never really got any live play to their audiences back in the day but yeah. now they could do it and during the steel wheels tour in uh, 1989 i got to see them do 2000 light years from home at shea stadium they played several nights in a row i went uh one of the nights and uh they they brought this out for the first time i remember jagger saying uh you know we never did this before and this is we're giving it a shot you know on this tour uh, I think they've occasionally done it over the years after that, but not regularly. Uh, right. You want to hear something funny? I went to that yeah. same show. 
Did you? Who did they open up? Who opened up? Because they had some big guys. Living Color. Huh? Living, Living Color was the opening act. That's I think that's the first time I saw Living Color too. I because yeah. I was trying to figure it out because um when I saw that steel wheel tool because um there used to be this guy the Magic Man that used to come to the bar uh-huh. and his and his wife was the one that did all the uh, costume for the Rolling Stones. Oh, okay. And he told me I got a ticket to see the Rolling Stone, and I was pretty banged up. And we just went, got on the train. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was one of those most amazing shows I'd ever seen. I'm not a big fan of like giant arena shows, but but you could feel Shea Stadium shaking. Okay, that's not a giant arena. It's a stadium, you know. Stadium show. Well, I mean, it. You know, fifty. It, it held fifty thousand people. It was sold out for like five nights in a row. So, yeah, that was yeah. that was crazy. It was like yeah. a crazy. I was like, wow, man, this five nights. I was like, I remember that. And yeah. the city, people were getting T-shirts, and the city was just on fire for those. Well, they hadn't toured. Days. They hadn't toured in in about eight years at that time. They uh, the last time they toured was the Tattoo You tour. Yeah, they went through a period where they almost broke up, and Jagger and Riches yeah. were fighting, and you know all that, but. You know, just getting back to to this album for a second, we'll move on to the next one. Is uh, it 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 just to me it it holds up as a very just interesting little timepiece from that time, and I think a lot of average Stones fans don't give it much thought. If you're a Stones fanatic like I am and other people I know, yeah, you know the record, but I think you know classic rock doesn't touch it. Okay, you don't hear any of the songs on the radio. Occasionally, you might hear "She's a Rainbow." Yeah, you definitely hear "She's a Rainbow." It's probably yeah. the, the one that you hear the most, like occasionally. Yeah, but you know, a lot of the tracks are just kind of like you know lost to to history a little bit. So that's the first one, number one. Okay, number two, the second uh, album is by the Flaming Groovies, uh, "Shake Some Action." Okay, this album came out in 1976. That's the album cover right there. Thank you, Rob. Um, the Flaming Groovies are a great band. Uh, they have a huge cult following. This album was their fourth album, and it was their first since 1971's Teenage Head. Uh, so they hadn't released an album in five years. And there was some changes in the band in that time. Okay, uh, original single Roy Loney was out. Uh, you know, they had a different sound on this record they dropped kind of the blues and rockabilly-ish stuff they were doing for more of a power pop sound that kind of emulated the 1960s british invasion bands they even took on a look of the british invasion bands with matching suits uh cuban heeled shoes uh you know to give it kind of like a a a mid-60s early 60s beatlesque kinks-esque type of sound um, I love this record. I think it's really like the first power pop record, though. Guys like the Raspberries were doing stuff a couple of years earlier. Uh, I, I, I think the Flaming Groovies kind of really took that sound and just kind of, you know, shined it like a diamond. You know, they just honed it down to what it should be. And um, they were signed to Sire Records at the time. And Sire was signing these new bands, part of the punk scene and stuff like that, like the Ramones. And uh, the Flaming Groovies kind of found themselves lumped in 
with these these bands. Um, they also toured with the with the Pistols and the, and the Ramones, the Sex Pistols. And yeah. the Ramones. Um, it's kind of a, a a reinventing, like I said, of their sound. Um, the track, excuse me, the track listing is uh, shake some action sometimes. Yes, it's true. St. Louis Blues, you tore me down. Please, please, girl, let the boy rock and roll. Don't you lie to me. She said, yeah, I'll cry alone. Misery, I saw her. Teenage Confidential and I Can't Hide. 14 perfect songs, summer covers, okay? Uh, yeah, like Misery, you know, right? Don't, don't You Lie to Me was, was uh, I believe, a, a Chuck Berry song made popular yeah. by, the, by the Stones. Uh, but, you know, Shake Some Action, the title track, is a, is one of my favorite songs of all time. The guitar sound on that song is incredible, okay? And it's so fucking catchy that you just, it sticks in your head, okay? And it just like, I don't know, it's just one of these records that I never get sick of listening to all the way through. I remember uh, Molly at the bar on her playlist, she always had, Yes, it's true. Okay. Yeah. And I so many times I sat at international listening to that. Uh you know, it's just a it's just a great, great record that I can't emphasize enough. The Flaming Groovies in general are somebody that, you know, some band that everybody should look into. You might have heard of them, but you don't really know too much by them. Yeah. But that album is a solid album. Like if you want to if you've never heard it, you and you and you would just um go on Apple or something, you could probably get the album and listen or Spotify and you could listen to the album and be like, wow, it'll take you to like another place. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty good stuff. And, and 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 they're still around. If you have a chance, yeah. see them. I caught them right before COVID, I think in 2019, uh in Manhattan in like a little like supper club type place I'd never been to before. And uh they were great. I mean, Cyril Jordan. You know, once Roy Loney left in the in the early seventies, um, he took over the band and 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 he took them in that Beatlesque sixty four British invasion type of sound, which they would carry on for many years. All right, so the third record we're going to talk about now. Uh, I know, yep, Rob, you're a big fan. That's Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask Replica. Yeah, that album cover, fantastic album. Yeah fucking fish head with a hat on all right this this record i don't I, I don't know what to say other than it's probably the most avant-garde record yeah. ever <laughs> ever created in, in 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 the rock and roll genre um beef Heart is an interesting guy we did a good show on him a couple years ago uh you know he he, he was part of like the frank zappa crew okay uh, he was on Straight Records. The album was produced by Frank Zappa, but I put him in. You know, even though he's he's often mentioned in the same sentence with Frank Zappa, totally different than what Zappa was doing. Um, it was more blues based, okay. Uh, but then again, you know, it was it was totally avant garde. It's a double record, all right. It's considered Captain Beefheart's greatest accomplishment, okay. But the album didn't even chart in the United States. Strangely, and and for a good for a good thing, 
it, it got to number 21 in the UK, which has to be one of the strangest records to ever, you know, hit the top 40 in, in, in any country. Oh, yeah. Um, let me tell you a little bit about how this went down. Even okay? from uh, the record cover, the record cover, look at that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the band, you know, uh, Captain Beefheart himself was, was an eccentric person. And the band lived communally for eight months rehearsing for this album, even before they they taped anything. Now, he demanded 14 hours or more of practice from the band every day. It was almost like they were in a cult. Yeah. Okay? They, they were forced to do this living together. They had no money. They were all on welfare. Okay. Uh, living on food stamps. And they, even with that, they rarely ate. Okay. Uh, there's some discussion as to whether there was serious drug taking going on. I, I, I would think there probably was. I know there wasn't a lot of eating going on because they didn't have money for food. But uh, Beefheart demanded, you know, total loyalty and total, uh, you know, uh, you got to practice 14, 16 hours a day. And his, he, he wasn't a, uh, a guy that, could easily explain what he wanted from you. Okay. So you had to really pay attention to him. And he tried teaching the band all what he wanted to do on a piano. Okay. And say, Hey, I want it to sound like this or like this on piano. But the funny thing was, is he didn't, he never played a piano before this record. So it's, it just seems like you had to really get in his head to figure out where he was coming from. Um, the album, you know, it's been called the cacophony of noise, okay? But you know, you you you'll listen to it, it's a double album, and you'll realize that there's a method to all this cacophony, all right? And you'll see that it was kind of done on purpose, the way these songs are arranged. Um, you know, over time, and it didn't, didn't take long. It had a cult following pretty much right away. Uh, it did go to to number twenty one in the UK, which brought the Captain Beefheart band over to the UK to perform some of this stuff, which had to be interesting in itself, just to see some of these songs done live. Um, but over the years, artists like John Lydon, who's Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, even Steve Vai, the great guitarist, John Frusciante, okay, uh, they were all fans of this record, just because the whole thing is so out of bounds and, and out there. And just so avant-garde that you just have to listen to it. It's just one of these records that you really got to sit down, spend an hour or so with it. It's a little over an hour. And uh, just listen to it and be like, what the hell am I hearing? How long is it all together? You know, it's a little over an hour, right? Yes, yeah, definitely. It's uh, the length of the album is 78 minutes. Yeah, so it's an hour and 18 minutes. Yeah. Now, the tracks, it's a double album. Side one, you got a song called Frownland. That goes into The Dust Blows Forward and The Dust Blows Back. Dachau Blues. Dachau was a Nazi concentration camp. Ella Guru. <laughs> Hair Pie Bake, part one. Moonlight on Vermont. Uh, side two starts with Pachuco Cadaver. Bill's Corpse, Sweet Sweat Bulbs, Neon Meat, Dream of Octafish, 
China Pig, My Human Gets Me Blues, <laughs> Dally's Dog. Okay, that's side two. Side three, Hair Pie, Bake Two. Okay, they call it. Pina, well, when Big when Big Jones spits spits up or whatever, Fallen Ditch, Sugar and Spikes, and the Ant Man B. Then side four is Orange Claw Hammer, Wildlife. She's too much for my mirror. Hobo Chang Box. That's the blimp, also called Mousetrap Replica. Steal Softly Through Snow. Old Fart at Play. And Veterans Day Poppy. All right. Really? So it's, you know, it's out. It's something that sounds like it's just out of another planet. Okay. Question when as the album was this four albums, if you were to buy the albums, because it seems like they had like they say size one, size two, size three, and size four. So if you no, it was released album, as a, it was released as a double record, Rob. It just was a two records in one. So it was a little, you know, double oh, albums or more. Oh, I get it. So it was two records and it had the side one, side two, and then the other one had side two, side three, side, side four. four. Okay. That's how double, if you remember, that's how double albums yeah. work. And it was expensive to make. Straight Records, which was Zappa's label. Uh, Zappa was, you know, very behind Beefheart and what he was doing and supportive, but, you know, really couldn't, you know, afford yeah, to make this record. So the fact that it was, songs, you know, that that's a lot of songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to, it's it, it's double the cost. It's a double yeah. record. Okay. So you, you got to pay, you know, and it was more money to pay those to to uh, to buy those records. So some people were turned off by double albums back in the day. That's something we've talked about a lot. But yeah, like I think Harris they made their money back. Remember? Well, triple I like the Clash, Sandinista, like that. Yeah, that's to me, that's overindulgence. You don't need to do that. It's just too much, you know. Um, but it made its money in England and in the rest of, of Europe where it's it still has a cult status. I think everybody should check out this record before you die. <laughs> it's a definitely it's definitely um record that you should have. Yeah. Now the third one or fourth one, sorry, we're talking about in, in part one of of this episode is we're gonna shift gears here and move up a few years uh to 1982. And it's a punk hardcore band called GBH, which stood for Grievous Bodily Harm out of England. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, GBH is something that you would be charged with. If it was kind of like an assault charge if you beat somebody up. And that's the back of it. You got the front. There you go. Yeah. City Babies Attacked by Rats. <laughs> this is one of my favorite records. Uh, title. Yeah. And, and this band really is the real deal. They were part of what was called the UK 82 scene. Okay, there was some other bands like Discharge and The Exploited and that came out of this scene in England. Uh, it was kind of like a second generation of punk rock, though these guys did start around 1979 or so. Uh, they came out, they were originally from Birmingham, which is where Black Sabbath is from, just so you know. Uh, and uh, they, they, they come out with this very, it's considered a landmark punk hardcore record it came out on clay records and it was produced by mike clay stone and later it came out on captain oi records it would be re-released on that um this influenced punks but also 
it influenced not just the punk scene, but the burgeoning kind of thrash metal scene that Metallica would 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 pioneer. Okay, uh, James Hetfield from Metallica uh, claims GBH and in particular this album as a big influence. Uh, also, um, there's a song that they made called Spit Out the Bone uh, from their album Hardwired to Self-Destruct. And the lyrics were lifted directly from the out, from the song on this album called Passenger on the Menu. So, you know, people were listening to this record in, in, in the underground. Um, it's, it's uh, I guess, about 19 songs or so, right? How many yep. is it all together? 19. 19 yeah. And... Um, it has touches of, I mean, if you know what punk hardcore sounds like, the songs are short, loud, to the point. And it, it sounds, uh, it's got a little bit of a Motorhead sound to it. You can hear the influences of Motorhead in there, yeah, um, even as well as, 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 as Black Sabbath, who hailed from the same city. It's 34 minutes of just a sonic blast. Uh, starts with the song Time Bomb. And it ends with their version of Slaughter and the Dogs, Bell and Bop. Okay. Now, it's just a balls out punk rock record that holds up with any of the stuff that came out in the 70s or even after. It's it's just one of these records that 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 stands the test of time. I think everybody should hear it. Uh the band is still around today. They actually just played New York City uh at the uh I believe it was in right. I believe Gramercy, I believe he's, right? it played the Gramercy. He also played a couple of spots on Long Island. I didn't get to see them this time around, unfortunately. Uh, but I've seen them a couple of times over the years. Uh, what they do sometimes when they tour now is they'll just concentrate on one album and do the whole album and then just throw in other other tracks. But um, you it's know, this of- album was this album was so influential that the next album was called city babies revenge so they just <laughs> they kept they kept the whole city babies thing going uh i love the artwork on the cover i love i just love the album it's just something that i always go back to when i want to listen to some loud punk rock so finally on uh, the part one of albums you must hear before you die is a detroit band Okay, uh, this band is called The Go. And they made an album called What You Doing that came out on Sub Pop in 1999, Sub Pop Records. Now, who are they? Well, Detroit is a very, you know, it's known for its hard rock music, uh, starting with the Stooges and the MC5, uh, the Rationals, uh, early Bob Seger, Ted Nugent. Okay, Alice Cooper has Detroit roots. Uh, really, just some of the best rock and roll that's ever been created has come out of Detroit. Now, most people think of the you know the '60s and the '70s, but in the '90s in Detroit, there was a resurgence of of really good rock and roll music, and a lot of it came out of what Jack White was doing. Jack White, if you remember, was the uh, lead guitarist and the uh, main dude in in the white stripes okay now he was in the band the go originally okay he would leave them and and just concentrate on his white stripes project which would make him a a household name and a multimillionaire but uh originally the go started in the mid 90s uh, bobby harlow 
was on lead vocals. John Krautner was on rhythm guitar. Jack White on lead guitar. Mark Fells on drums. And Dave Buick, like the car, on bass. Now, they were also mentored by L.A. producer slash songwriter slash Svengali Kim Fowley. Okay. Uh, Kim is an interesting cat. Uh, I'm sure you heard of him. He started The Runaways, okay, which was just one of his manage them. If you ever saw The Runaways movie, he was crazy. He was hard to work with. The guy had a musical career of his own. He wrote the, the famous song Alley Oop in the in the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, you know, which was about a caveman. And uh had his own albums. Uh he, the guy, the guy was a everything from a DJ to a producer to a manager to just an all-around crazy motherfucker. All right. And he mentored, <laughs> he mentored, he mentored this band in the beginning, which I feel is, is, is so interesting that they actually got involved with Kim Fowley. But um, this is a band that should have made it huge. In my opinion. Uh, I don't know why they didn't. Um, I picked up on them uh, right when this album came out. Uh, it came out in 99. Okay. And uh I think I, I, I'm trying to remember. I discovered them through somebody I knew from Detroit and also just some of the early internet that was out there in 99. I, I, I discovered them somehow. And I remember going down to Tower Records and, uh, you know, uh, you know, my friend Keith. Yeah. My friend Keith? Okay. Uh, I believe I was even with him when I bought it and we just, you know, put it on in the car right away and we're just blown away by this record it's a very 60s style album uh the production on it i mean well 60s in the style of stooges uh mc5 stuff like that uh the album is actually recorded a little bit muddy but it was done on purpose and i think that some of the critics of it felt it was a badly produced record but they, they were trying to go for something of a Detroit sound in the sixties, which sometimes was a little muddy in the production. Now, these are the tracks. It's called meet me at the movies. The album is called what you're doing. First track, meet me at the movies, summer sun blues, keep on trash. You can get high. It might be bad. Then Susie don't leave, get you off tired of the night, but you don't know title track, what you're doing. Then on the corner and then time, for oh, what the hell is that last track? Time for for moving. Time for the moon. Time for I'm sorry. Time for the moon. I have horrible handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, time for the moon. Now, uh, this is an album that everybody should hear. It's still out there. You can get it. It's not out of print. In fact, the band in 2019 put out like a 20th anniversary version of the record, which had some outtakes wow. and different versions and stuff like that. Uh, they would go on to make a couple more records. Um, they wouldn't really make anything that was as good as this, though everything by them is is listenable. I caught them a few times live. Uh, they never really disappointed. I don't know where they're at much since they've released the 20th anniversary in 2019. Uh, I, I think the members went on to other things, but I believe they still occasionally 
play and get together. If you have a chance to see them, it's definitely worth it. But this record, What You Doing, came out in 1999, is the uh, the fifth album that you should hear before you die. Wow, man, that's uh, that list so far. The first five albums, pretty, pretty damn good. I can't wait for the next episode because this is oh, the yeah. end of episode one, and um, those are the first five albums. And they, there's no ranking; it's just albums that we talk about. We got um. Five more albums coming up, and I think those other albums are damn good, also. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to talk more about them next week. Uh, if you're looking for me, you could find me yep. on social media. Uh, on Facebook, I'm called Rocco Mike. Okay, they won't let me be Rocco Mike. Then you could look under the uh, on Facebook, the Rock Show podcast group page with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. We're on there every day, song of the day, song of the night. News, ticket information on stuff, uh, just you know, little little th- little things. I text, I I put out all day on that on that site. Um, if you want me on Instagram, I'm Rocker Mike two one two. Same for Twitter. Um, I'm also on MeWe, CloudHub, Truth Social, Getter, all under Rocker Mike. How about you, Rob? And me, you can find me on anything getting lumped up on the YouTube, Twitter, uh, the website, and Facebook. So an easy way to um, reach me is on any of those platforms. And also Instagram. Just look up getting lumped up and we're all over the place. And uh, Mike, thanks for another uh, great episode. And this is part one. And Wait till you hear part two. two. Part two will be coming out. So people have a good one. And remember, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. See you in two weeks, people.